Hi, everyone. Welcome to the CSPI podcast. I'm here with Steven Pinker, a professor of Har- at Harvard and author of many uh, important books that you should all read. Uh, hey, Steve, how are you doing today? Fine, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we're here to talk about uh, your new book, Rationality. Uh, what's, the, what's the full title, Rationality? What it is, why it seems scarce, why it matters. So, I, you know, when I, when I found out you were writing this book, I was interested because I thought, how are you going to, you know, approach this question? It's such a broad topic and, you know, you're no, uh, you're no stranger to broad topics. Previous books are how the mind works, the language instinct, uh, you know, kind of violence. Uh, so I, I was interested how you approach that question. Uh, how, how, how did you handle that? How did you sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, narrow the question and you know and un- understand the concept of rationality in the book. A, uh, the, the heart of the book is a set of chapters on tools for rationality that I think many scientists and academics and psychologists and social scientists feel should be part of the uh, everyone's mental toolkit. We should all people everyone should understand the basic uh, idea behind Bayesian reasoning that is evaluating beliefs in the face of evidence, distinguishing causation and correlation, logic, crit- critical thinking, uh, probability, game theory. Uh, that th- these are just um, uh, essential to being a, um, a rational educated person. But I not was not aware of any source that put them between two covers and try to explain them to uh, an, an intelligent, uh, literate audience. Uh, at the same time, that they, each one of them provides an opportunity to discuss some of the uh, very interesting findings from my own field of cognitive psychology, namely, what are the ways in which people uh, tend to be irrational, the fallacies and biases and heuristics and errors that uh, have been made famous by the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and behavioral economists. So I wanted to um, uh, uh, contrast the, the the normative benchmarks for rationality uh, with the uh, ways in which we tend to backslide away from them. I wanted to make the case for rationality that uh, that, that that being rational doesn't mean being a uh, you know, a cold, boring, nerdy Spock type, uh-huh. um, in, including its role in uh, moral progress and. Unavoidably, I had to take on the question of um, why does the world seem to be losing its mind? Why is there so much uh, fake news, quack cures, conspiracy theorizing, post-truth rhetoric, paranormal woo-woo? It would seem that in in an era in which we're, on the one hand, technologically and scientifically more sophisticated than ever, that... um, that there's uh, we're, we're 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 drowning in in malarkey and flapdoodle. Yeah. So, what is the what is the case for rationality? You can you explain. I think rationality. Rationality. I mean, as I understand it, in the way you present it in the book, it's that once you accept rationality, and what you have to start with a premise, right? Uh, different premises, and then you can you know build a series of from the series of steps get somewhere, right? Um, and what what is the case for you know what is the case against someone who just says I don't want to be rational in the first place? I, you know, I, I think uh, life is richer if I live in sort of a, a mythical universe where I walk around and you know indulge my in. Instincts and and just have fun. What, what is the argument for rationality as, as a normative principle? It, it's a, a peculiar argument because as soon as you ask for the argument for anything, you've already committed yourself to rationality. You, it's a it's a debate where you, you show up, you lose because yeah. the the very idea that we're going to I'm going to pr- try to persuade you of anything, including the case for rationality, means that we've already signed on to the idea that you should believe things because there are reasons, uh, as opposed to say. Being being bribed, being 
threatened, being intimidated. So you've already signed on to it. And um, you know, once we're having the conversation, which means uh-huh. there's a sense in which you've already lost it, then you yeah. can also point out that rationality is not opposed to pleasure, enjoyment, emotion, human relationships. Rationality is always in the pursuit of a goal. It's not just spinning out true, 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 true thoughts. Um, you could you could you know crank out the digits of pi till the uh, till till the end of time. You could uh, crank out incredibly trivial and boring true statements uh, uh, generated by the laws of logic. That wouldn't be count as rationality. We uh, deploy our, sp- our our smarts for uh, to to attain goals, and those goals certainly can be. Um, uh, pleasure at the, the the joys of life. I think when people contrast reason and emotion, thinking and feeling, what they often have in mind is uh, a, a conflict between different goals, like feeling good in the moment versus uh, how you feel the, the morning after or the week after or the year after. Namely, uh, how do we uh, trade off uh, immediate gratification to longer-term goals? And also, how do we trade off goals uh, that conflict among people when there's a zero-sum aspect to uh, to, to um, some of our, our interactions. Namely, there can be goals that an individual pursues uh, that conflict with goals that other individuals pursue, and that's that's another case in which it seems as if we're uh, that that there are limits to, to rationality, but it's ultimately rationality that allows us to, to grapple with those trade-offs. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I you know the the um, uh, so I guess in a different way to ask that question: Is there a rationalist case against rational irrationality? As far as okay, I accept your arguments. I participate in you know this project of having a discussion and giving reasons for uh, my belief. But you know, as when it comes to religion, when it comes to politics. Uh, when it comes to my, you know, ultimate views of the universe, you know, there's there's no instrumental reason for me to believe in the truth. So I'm going to indulge in whatever I feel. Most people don't think like this, but <laughs> you know, actually, I think it, most people do think in in that 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 that, that monologue that you just uh, not consciously, shared. I hope not, not consciously, but I think, in fact, I think that's a, a huge part of the answer to the puzzle that that one of the puzzles that motivated the book, namely, uh, why does uh, why does it appear that humanity is losing its mind? How could how could any sane person believe in you know in QAnon or or chemtrails, <laughs> the conspiracy theory that uh, jet contrails are really mind altering drugs dispersed by a secret government program? And part of the answer is that people, uh, for uh, people are in fact most people most of the time are rational about their day to day lives, about holding a job and, and 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 getting the kids to school on time. Uh, they have to be. You live, we live in a law of a world of cause and effect, and not of magic. So, if you want to keep food in the fridge and gas in the car, you pretty much have to be rational. But then, when it comes to beliefs like cosmic metaphysical beliefs, like beliefs about what happened in the distant past, in the unknowable future, in remote halls of power that we'll, we'll never set foot in, there people. Uh, don't particularly care about whether their beliefs are true or false, because for most people and for most times in our in our history, you, you couldn't know anyway. <clears throat> so your beliefs might as well be based on what's <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> sorry, what's uh, empowering, what's uplifting, what's inspiring, what's a good story, and uh, people divide. I think divide their their beliefs into these two zones: what impinges on you in your everyday life. And what is more 
symbolic, mythological. It's really only with the, I think, the Enlightenment, more or less, the idea that all of our beliefs should, should be uh, put in the reality zone, should be uh, scrutinized for whether they're true or false. It's, it's actually, in human history, it's a pretty exotic belief. I think it's a good belief or a, a good commitment, but it's not, doesn't come naturally to us. Yeah. So, I mean, so in that case, I mean, that yeah, that, that all makes sense. I mean, it's a subtle point and it's an important point because you're right. You see somebody with, you know, uh, who believes in QAnon and some of these crazy conspiracy theories, you think, you know, how are they just not walking into walls, right? How, how are they connected enough to reality to live their lives, sometimes be successful in, you know, whatever career they've chosen? Um, and that's, you know, that, that all makes perfect sense. So, you know, the question is, is I mean, is, you, you, so, so if, you know, if we hear, we come to the conclusion that they are being rational and being irrational. It seems like it seems like they've got us. Have it, what do you say to the QAnon supporter or the Vax denier? Well, the Vax denier might actually, you know, it might come back to hurt them. But some, but the QAnon person or the chemtrails person uh, who finds this satisfying and you know it says you, you can't, you know, there's no rational reason to be rational about this. Well, they, they might actually insist that they are being rational. That uh, sure, do the research, right. follow the evidence. It's it's everywhere, and of course. Believers and conspiracy theorists have uh, uh, can, can keep their beliefs well protected against falsification by kind of meta theories of how you know, that that's what they want you to believe. It just shows what a diabolical conspiracy it is that they've that the truth is so well hidden, uh, and and uh, is one of those families of beliefs that are by their very nature are resistant to falsification, which makes it all the harder to convince someone uh, out of it. So you know, I don't think I don't think we we have an algorithm for doing it because often the benefits that uh, that that uh, accrue to holding these beliefs are social. You're part of a uh, a community that offers you warmth and support and sucker, kind of like joining a, a cult. And uh, it takes a lot to get people to part with those. And in the same way, that talking someone out of a, a religious belief is uh, often uh, difficult. Uh, because it's uh, it's everything that makes their lives meaningful. Um, it, uh, but you can nibble around the edges. There is generational turnover that uh, new babies are being born uh, every minute. They're not necessarily – their beliefs are, have yet to be shaped. There are people who are on the, on the verge. They're not all in, and uh, they can be persuaded. There are people who bump up against reality, like the the vax deniers who come <laughs> come down with COVID. Uh, there, or uh, you know, sometimes uh, different different social uh, <clears throat> affiliations can come into conflict and, and and yank you from one belief system into another. Um, I had a, a conversation with um, a journalist named Ellen Cushing, who, as a teenager, got sucked into the belief in the Illuminati theory mm. of. Uh, and she had a high school teacher who uh, amazingly promoted it in class, and it sounded intriguing to her. And she then she tried to convince everyone she knew. Then she, she was uh, she grew up in Berkeley, and it, it soon became clear that the Illuminati theory was deeply anti-Semitic, which mm-hmm. in Berkeley is deeply uncool. Uh-huh. And uh, she had to decide: is she going to be an anti-Semite or is she going to be a believer? <laughs> and so that uh, one one social uh, norm. You know, pulled her out of another. Uh, yeah. So you know, we do, I think we don't have an algorithm to cure people of, of cult beliefs, but but it has to be approached from a, a variety of directions. 
Have you thought about, um, you know, the way some people get into like comic books or they get into Dungeons of Dragons. So they seem to indulge this, you know, there's this need for a, uh, you know, a fantasy world that they can live in and they form communities based on that. And then some people believe in, you know, chemtrails or QAnon or something. Do you think that's speaking to the same human need? And it, it seems like if they are, maybe we'd try to, you know, you know, subsidize comic books or something to give some people you know, <laughs> right. what, what they need. I, well, absolutely, it is, and and it's been noted that uh, QAnon is like a uh, kind of an online uh, gaming platform, where you uh, uh, you spot clues, you get rewarded for ever more ingenious uh, you know, deconstructions. You uh, <coughs> uh, people avidly follow each other's you know, sub theories. Uh, so I suppose, yeah, constructive alternatives might, might be one way. Um, but the thing is that in a you know such a vast society of so many di- diversions, um, you know, how do you um, uh, ha- how do you offer one source of competing uh, amusement that will suck people out of the destructive ones as opposed to you know Marvel comics or or or, or Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, I think that has to be part of an approach because yeah, you know, it'd be maybe a great world where everybody could get into like healthcare policy or you know uh, the, the specifics of global warming and you know carbon tax and what would be a good policy. But that you know that would be like an idealized democracy. That's probably unrealistic. So maybe we have to think about you know what kind of institutions and things would actually appeal to people that can be sort of a uh, uh, you know a, a counterbalance or a substitute for these other harmful, uh, more destructive beliefs. Yes, yeah, so, well, you know, ideally, uh, you know, it's very hard to engineer this from the top down. But there are, you know, there 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 was a time, and you know, there still exists these things called you know the service organizations, the you know the the, the Rotary Club and the uh-huh. uh, uh, um, the, the, the Lions Club and Kiwanis, where they uh, it offers people the community and warmth of traditional religions or cults for that matter it mm-hmm. often directs their activity toward constructive activities building you know burn units for, for, for children in the case of the shriners um, uh, eliminating um, eye disease in Africa in the case of uh, the, the rotary club um, the thing is that they are you know deeply square and uncool yeah. and uh, w- which is a shame because they they, they, they have been uh, um, kind of mobilized to do good work. There was, you know, there was a time, at least in the, in the '60s, when joining the Peace Corps was 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 pretty cool. And, you know, granted, its its own track record was was mixed. Um, so, I, ideally, there would be outlets for our need for affiliation, meaning, purpose that really do lead people to do good things. You know, maybe effective altruism clubs or the rationality community can serve that that function. Or for that matter, a lot of religions in, in practice, you know, even though I, I, I started by talking about how <clears throat> religions themselves are uh, often based on, on, on fake news and conspiracy theories and, and uh, paranormal. I mean, what, what else are reports of uh, miracles in the Bible but fake news about uh, paranormal phenomena? <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, there's been a huge trend where religions, many religions, have become have, have liberalized, secularized. They, they've been, you know, Reformed Judaism and, and liberal Protestant denominations, and the Ecumenical Council of the, Va- the Vatican. Uh, the, the, the Mormons periodically get revelations like, uh, you know, maybe African Americans don't bear the mark of Cain. Uh, yeah. Maybe polygamy is not such a good thing. So religions can can, can change, uh, you know, expediently, but in ways that that uh, they, and the direction tends to be away from. 
literalism, fundamentalism in, in, in many religions. Uh, and so they could, in theory, be you know, kind of morph into you know, service organizations and, and, and uh, do-gooder clubs. Yeah. I mean, well, that, you know, that reminds me because one thing in, in your book that, you know, the book is about, we, you know, we Russian, it's obviously pro-rationality says we need more, more of it, but what you, the process you describe in religion seems like a, a little bit of a flight away from rationality because you point out here and you also pointed out, I think in a better angels that the most rational Christians, you know, were the ones who, uh, tortured people until they <laughs> right. stopped being heretics, um, to save their souls, which, you know, utilitarian, you know, from a utilitarian perspective makes sense um and so you know i i you know i think moving away from that you obviously think is a good thing but it was a case of moving away from rationality maybe maybe we need we need more rationality but maybe we also need more compartmentalization like the people who are uh, who are into dungeons and dragons are, have compartmentalized that from the political world right well, the people yes. on are sort of running, you know, running campaigns on it. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's yeah, no, that, I think that, that's exactly right. I mean, that really um, uh, kind of zeroes in on the psychology that, that's involved. Um, you know, in both cases, the the pleasure in, in fantasy and in hero tales and, and you know, morality tales is, uh, is is seductive. And the question is, can you keep it in a, a zone where you don't literally believe in it? And um, you know, when, when you do, it can cause real trouble. And uh, and you know, the the, the the crusaders and inquisitors, um, you know, did the well, one thing you got to say for them, they they took their beliefs seriously, yeah. uh, literally. Uh, but that, which was a big problem. Now, of course, everyone could become a secular humanist, but until that day happens, if it if it ever will, there can be a benign sequestering of certain beliefs into a kind of mythology zone where you. If you're asked, you say you believe it, but you don't act as if you really believe it. Yeah. Do you? Um, so, I mean, that you know, that's that's one problem with you know people not uh, you know people uh, adopting beliefs that are irrational, bringing them into the political realm. Do you also worry about belief in science and uh, rationality slipping into scientism? Um, because I, you know, I see that there. You know, I, I read these newspaper articles sometimes and in the you know mostly in the prestige press so they say things like experts say scientists say and it's never based on a meta-analysis or, or anything right sometimes it's you know true like you know the summarizes in the east and sets in the west uh sometimes though it seems to be highly contentious stuff and it seems that um you know, it's uh, uh, it's often ideologically convenient for the outlet that's you know putting the ideas forward. Uh, so, do you, do you worry about that, and and how do we guard against the, this this problem too of just calling whatever we like science or rationality? Uh, absolutely. I mean, it is it's a built-in danger, and uh, you know, I don't think it's a an indictment of rationality or science itself because the uh, the power of rationality is that it can always step back and look at itself or look at some application of rationality and say. Those people are claiming to be rational. Are are they really, or are they, in fact, irrational while claiming to be rational? Likewise, in science, at least when it's done right, uh, someone who says, "Well, this is the the, the scientific," uh, I'm speaking the, the scientific truth, and someone else can say, "Well, no, you're not." Um, that's that's what happens when science works well. Now, when it doesn't work well, it um, <clears throat> is when. There isn't an enforced consensus. Often, when there is a, a kind of a political and intellectual monoculture in science, and there's reason to believe that that happens in, in uh, uh, big swaths of science. Uh, and another is, I think you've also pointed to a, 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 a kind of a, a, 
an illness of science journalism. Uh, I think they're way, science journalists are waking up to it now, which is to favor the cute, counterintuitive, revolutionary, everything you always thought was wrong finding. Uh, often a single finding, one experiment that was published in Science or Nature yesterday. That's the way journalism often works. It's, it's about news. It's about the, the, the surprise. If it, if it doesn't surprise you, it's not news. But that's really uh, inimical to the way science ought to be done, which, first of all, builds uh, cumulatively. So a lot of good science is um, uh, reinforces a, a good theory rather than constant, constant uh, what was Mao's term, continuous, continual revolution. Um, and uh, you're, you, you, you noted that a lot of the attention-getting claims in scientific journal, science journalism are not from meta-analyses, but they really should be. Uh, instead of reporting something from the newsfeed of science and nature, and by the way, science and nature are guilty of promoting this and contributing mm. to replicability and credibility crises in science, uh, the, it really should be the meta-analyses that get the headlines, not the cutesy finding from yesterday, which uh, probably eight times out of ten is wrong. Uh, and I actually talk about it in the book, A Principled Reason, why these cute findings are wrong, based on Bayesian reasoning, namely evaluating uh, ideas in the face of evidence. Namely, you should start with the priors. Based on everything that we know so far, our understanding of how the universe works, how should we evaluate this new claim? And if it's a revolutionary claim, if it's an everything you always thought was wrong claim, then it might be wrong. Uh, unless it's the strength of its evidence is overwhelming, the presumption should be that the entirety of our knowledge accumulated up to this point is not worthless. It's not going to be overturned by you know one study done by someone somewhere. Uh, but that's that kind of consciousness of, of Bayesian reasoning in in, in science itself uh, has been slow to penetrate, and it is one of the uh, reasons for the, the replicability crisis. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the favorite, you know, my favorite stories about this, I think you talk about it in the book, with the, with the uh, where the the journals found that there was a there was a psychic ability where people could read minds, and it was yeah, just could predict the, the predict the future. They could. Uh, this is a, a, a published. Uh, it was all published by the eminent social psychologist Daryl Ben. He's been a fixture in social psychology for fifty or sixty years. Uh, published in one of the prestigious journals, it passed peer review, which should tell us a little something about you know, prestige in social psychology and and fantasy schmancy journals and peer review <laughs> we got a problem there if yeah. a uh, if an experiment that claimed to show that some undergraduates could predict uh, a, a, a random choice by a computer of uh, where it's going to place a pornographic image behind a screen if they could predict it before the computer actually selected the image well maybe there's something a wee bit wrong with the study even if the results seem to suggest that that uh, that, that under your typical undergraduate does have precognition uh, so that that indeed was a failure of Bayesian reasoning in science itself. Yeah, I, your cha in your chapter uh, correlation and causa causation, I think that's what it's called. Um, you seem to you seem to uh, say something that I, you know. I want to see if this is you know your view because it's something that you know I've thought of and I've I've come close to believing. You see, you seem to argue that uh, randomized uh, control trials and natural experiments are basically the gold standard uh, of establishing causation. And then you have you know you have like regular I think what you call regular regression, just looking at you know something causing another. And putting in a bunch of controls um, and, and seeing what happens statistically. Um, 
Uh, do, do you think, you know, how, how big is the gap between the RCTs, the natural experiments, the regression discontinuity design, and the, you know, the, just the regular uh, ordinary least squares regression type of analysis? Do you think that's a big gulf or, or, or you know, are, are they more on the same level? Um, well, the ordinary least squares is is kind of a uh, you know it's often the, the best that we can do. So this would be you measure an awful lot of things. You're um, interested in a particular outcome. You uh, add up and weight all the putative causes, and you see if each each one of these variables um, can account for some percentage of the variance in what you're interested in holding all the others constant. The, the thing is that often it's the best we can do just because society itself is not a, a lab in which we can run randomized uh, uh, controls, uh, controlled experiments. You know, we can't, if we want to see what the effect of social media is on political polarization, we can't take, you know, one, one city and deprive it of social media for a year and another one and let them have, have access to Twitter and, and, and Come back a year later. Uh, people are going to have Twitter if they want to have Twitter, and you know, unless we're we have powers like Mao Zedong, we can't <laughs> we can't impose a randomized controlled trial on a country as a whole. So sometimes right. uh, the combination of ordinary least squares with you know all kinds of cleverness like regression discontinuities or um, natural experiments, the uh, the kind of stuff that Freakonomics made famous, is the the, the best we can do. Yeah. Well, I mean, do, do you, would you consider the possibility that sometimes the best we can do um, is worse than nothing? Because if we do nothing, we don't have any certainty about what we know. Well, if a method is not very good, um, we have we end up with uh, you know hundreds of studies all saying the same thing, and then they say experts say, and then people t- you know take that as a, as a real scientific finding. Is it possible that maybe just the the costs of doing bad research outweigh the benefits? Well, I think I think what we would call for is uh, being able to uh, comment, bracket, put into perspective, maybe even discount uh, bodies of research if there's reason to think that they're uh, systematically misleading, uh, or if they're you know, if, if they are looking for the keys under the, the lamppost because that's where the light is good. You, we should be aware of that. Now, uh, you know, I suspect that. Knowing them and knowing their limitations is better than just flying blind and being completely ignorant. But you know that having been said, it is possible that some the only method quantitative method available to us is so misleading that we'd be we'd be better off not knowing it at all. But if yeah. so, we there, there have to be reasons for 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 stating that, and we should therefore state those the, that reason. Namely, this whole line of research is. Um, has has uh, you know unearned claims to precision um, one ought to discount it you can you can say that if one has good reasons to say that yeah i think that's right and i think that's you know right in theory and if you're just you know a person trying to uh, uh understand something about the world you know something is always better than nothing and knowing the limit uh, limitations of that one thing um is is good uh, you know i worry that it, in the real world in the wild uh, if you have 200 studies and you know hundreds of experts saying the same thing, and they're all based on the same false methodology, you know, I, I just think the real world effects of that tend to be, you know, tend to mislead people uh, as often or more than than you know that it enlightens. But you know, it, it, it's a problem. It, yeah, it is. It is a it is a danger. I mean, when when that happens, so uh, uh, yeah. Right. Uh, so, you know, one thing I was uh, interested in. Yeah, I, one thing I really liked actually in the book. Um, uh, about this going back to this uh, zone of you know the the reality mindset and the mythology mindset and how we compar- 
compartmentalized. When, when I started uh, trading in political science, you know, they start us in uh, statistics, and we learned the we we learned like a Kahneman and Tversky and all the uh, uh, all the cognitive biases people have and all the all the mistakes they make. Uh, they didn't actually teach us the, the they didn't actually teach us the other part of that, which is that people suddenly can become rational uh, once the once the structure of the problem stays the same, but it's relevant to some real human problem. So you have one uh, you. You talk about this one uh, uh, experiment in the book where people are looking at coins and um, they, uh, you know, and they're not very rational. And then they're trying to catch people, uh, you know, see if they're uh, following the rules when it comes to using stamps. Can you can you explain that real quickly? Because I, I just think that's a beautiful demonstration of of how people can be rational with the same structure of the underlying problem. Yeah, this is a, a real chestnut in in, uh, in in psychology. It go, goes way back. It's sometimes called the card selection task, uh, and it is a, a failure of logical reasoning. That is, if you just give people four cards, say, and you see there's a D on one side and a three on the other, uh, test that rule with these four cards. Uh, do these cards actually obey the rule? And you give them a D, a three, a seven, and an F. The uh, people will, so remember the rule is if D then three. Which cards do you have to turn over? And the highly replicable result is people turn over the D, or they turn over the D and the three. The correct answer is they should turn over the D and the seven, uh, because it, you know everyone agrees you got to turn over the D. That's that's the easy part. But you really don't have to turn over the three. The rule says if D then three, not mm-hmm. if three then D. Right. And you really do have to turn over the seven because if it had a D on the other side, then the rule would be dead. But it mm-hmm. doesn't occur to most people to, to turn it over. Uh, so that's the, the that was, that's the classic finding, sometimes explained as confirmation bias, not exactly accurately, but good enough for now. Namely, people seek out evidence that confirms their beliefs and don't uh, seek out evidence that might falsify them. Now it turns out. You know, and that it's a real result. It, it's it's not a it replicates uh, you know uh, up the kazoo. Uh-huh. Uh, but it turns out before we write off people as hopelessly irrational, it turns out that there is a, an important twist, sometimes called content effect. Namely, if you replace the D's and threes, which are kind of you know pretty abstract and boring, with um, uh, socially relevant contingencies, especially permissions and um, uh, precautions and privileges and, uh, uh, and rights, then suddenly uh, people turn into logicians. So let me be concrete. If a, uh, if a bar patron is, uh, drink, is, is drinking alcohol, he, he must be over 21. Now, who do you check? Do you card the guy with a glass of beer? Do you card the guy with a glass of Coke? Do you look into the uh, glass of someone who is clearly uh, over 21, do you look into the glass of someone who's clearly under 21? Now, everyone gets the answer right. Well, of course, you mm-hmm. card the guy drinking beer, and you look into the glass of someone who's under 21, and that is the logically correct answer. So it's, it's, uh, it's hasty and glib to say people are irrational. What people don't have is a general purpose abstract logical rule that they can kind of deploy like a gunslinger in any circumstance and no matter what the content they know this is a, a rule of logic and you apply it it's that our logical thinking is kind of baked in with our subject matter knowledge which in a way is pretty rational it's not logical but uh, for for living your life uh, you know, you often don't need to apply abstract rules of logic like modus ponens or the law of, co- of, of contrapositions contraposition. Um, the thing is that with 
the Enlightenment with university education, with tools of logic and statistics and math. We do have these general purpose content-free tools, and it, and it is a good thing to know them, but they don't come naturally. So the conclusion is not that we're illogical. The, uh, the, the, the conclusion is that our logical thinking is married to particular contents and is not a general across-the-board tool. Yeah. So is the key to that one, the fact that it involves some kind of, uh, uh, you know, the difference between uh, flipping over the cards and uh, people drinking alcohol at the bar? Is, is, it, is it something related to uh, we think about humans cheating on something? Is that is that the content that makes us so good at this? Or is, is there something, you know, broader or different going on there? Well, that is a, a, a famous hypothesis by my, my good friend Lita Cosmides based oh. on um, a prediction from evolutionary thinking, namely that what makes us social is the ability, as a species, is the ability to enter into and enforce social contracts. That is, we co cooperate with others because uh, we know that if you... Um, take a benefit, you have to pay a cost, uh, you know, reci reciprocally. Um, you know, I, I do a favor for you, you do a favor for me, and in order for me not to be exploited, I got to make sure that, um, uh, that, that if you take a favor, you have uh, uh, paid the cost beforehand. And there is a debate within the literature of cognitive psychology, yeah, namely, what kinds of content turn people into logicians. It can't be any old content, mm -hmm. uh, right. but uh, certainly... When it comes to detecting cheaters, which is equivalent to falsifying an if-then rule, the if-then rule in this case being if you take a benefit, you have to pay a cost, it, it sharpens the mind. People are very, very good at that. Uh, Lita Cosmides has debated uh, other cognitive psychologists who claim that there are other circumstances that can turn people into uh, logicians. I think she she, she is, uh, uh, is pretty much right. I think she herself has also... Uh, noted that there, there are other uh, salient, evolutionarily relevant forms of reasoning that can also turn us into logicians. Detecting cheaters isn't the only one. Uh, taking precautions might be another one. We live in a world of dangers. Something like if you, um, if you, if you get on a bicycle, you should wear a helmet. Uh, that, that's another category of if-then rules that people are pretty good at, at uh, falsifying as well. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. Uh, I was, you know, I was wondering one of the one when I looked at the um, uh, when I started reading the book and I looked at the different chapters. I was interested in that there wasn't. I mean, you do this does come up a little bit throughout the book, but I, I was surprised that the cost benefit analysis didn't get its own uh, chapter because it seems to be that so, uh, people, you know, maybe this is not a a strictly you know a strict point about rationality, but it seems to me that. We often, in our public conversations, we look at one side of the ledger. We look at the cost of something or we look at the benefits of doing something. And we just don't look at the other side, right? Like you'll see a study, they'll say, you know, masks work. And then people will jump to, okay, we should mandate masks everywhere. And the question is, you know, what are the costs of masks? How much do they work? So it's just the beginning of the conversation to show masks work, right? It's, it's, not, the, it's not the end of it. Um, how do you think about cost-benefit analysis and in terms of these other concepts? And do you think, how, how central do you think it has to be to uh, you know, having a rational understanding of politics and social issues. Yeah, well, I couldn't agree more. And uh, it, it, and it, indeed, it is a huge um, blind spot in a lot of our public deliberations. People will identify a, a, a danger and say, "Well, we've got to zero it out," uh, without taking into account the the, the, the uh, costs. And it is folded into the book in the chapter on. Um, 
what I call rational choice, expected utility, because mm -hmm. the expected utility of an option is, in fact, the probability weighted um, sum of, of the costs and benefits. But you're right, I, I probably did not spell out the implications in the public sphere as much as I did in the, in the individual sphere. It also figures into uh, what psychologists call signal detection theory, but more broadly statistical decision theory, which is um, setting a decision criterion when there are costs both to missing uh, an event, that is something happens and you act as if it uh, hadn't taken place, and false alarms, something that uh, is not there but you act as if it is. And that is kind of a hybrid of uh, Bayesian reasoning, namely evaluating the likelihood of uh, of some event or outcome or idea, and um, rational choice, namely weighting up the costs and benefits of each kind of uh, error. And so, uh, you know, I, I I could have played up more the the the, the relevance of cost benefit analysis in in, in public choices, uh, but those are the two chapters in which that idea is uh, explained. So you know things like we we know about it in the case of legal decision making and you know how do we trade off the danger of uh, falsely convicting an innocent person versus falsely acquitting a guilty one, and where the costs and benefits there are reckoned partly in moral terms instead of in dollars and cents, but the logic is the same. Uh, but yeah, in case of of of, uh, of mask, there's both the there's it really takes place at two levels. One of them is uh, what are the or 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 lockdowns or any other policy, what are the net um, benefits and costs? And the other is what are the if we get that wrong, uh, how how bad would it be? That is, do we err on the in, in the case of caution? Uh, how much uh, uh, how much of a risk should we take? What what could what's the worst thing that could happen if we're wrong in each of the two ways of being wrong? Yeah, yeah. This, this this influenced my yeah thinking of COVID because I, I at the beginning you you didn't know what the worst case scenario was. You you do you know it could be you, we we didn't know you know the, the death the total for, uh, fatality rate numbers coming out of China were were in some cases absolutely you know massive and that was a possibility. As time went on, you know we we had some experience. Uh, you know more people got vaccinated, more people uh, uh, acquired natural immunity, and so yeah, it seems like to me the whole calculation changed, and you know just the limit the amount of people People that could uh, be killed and sort of the error bars just sort of uh, uh, contracted, and it seems like you know we, we never we never changed our thinking. We 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 still we still stay you know in the same mindset where we were at the start of this, and you know yeah that's an important point. You have to look at. I could I, yeah I couldn't agree more. And what one thing that I didn't talk about at all in the book, but that could have been there if I had another chapter, is I guess what they call. Um, oh, a public choice theory. That what are, what are the different incentives of the decision makers like the, right. you know, the public health bureaucrats and everyone else. And because the, the signal detection or statistical decision theory, uh, which I do explain in the book, has different payoffs for those different parties, those the, the principals and the agents, uh, there can be some unexamined uh, irrationalities in our decision making where we're doing what's best for bureaucrats covering their, their, their anatomy uh, than, than for the public as a whole. Uh, and that mm -hmm. should play a more prominent role in our decision-making, namely the experts have their own set of incentives. They ought to be acting in the interests of people, uh, but they don't necessarily. 
Yeah. I mean, I, I like that because there's a, you know, there's just a, you can, you know, you can sum this, you can sum up the idea of why we have so few rationale, so, uh, so little rationality when we need it in terms of people are rational when the incentives line up, right? And they're irrational when the incentives don't line up or they, they're still rational when the incentives line up, but they're, but they're, you know, I guess, I guess the, or another formulation, you could say something like rationality is, I mean, people are always being rational, right? Because if they're rationally irrational, right, they're being irrational when it makes sense. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, rationality is um, pro-social in some circumstances, right? And it's antisocial in other circumstances when you're, you know, uh, believing in QAnon and voting on that, you know, to fit into some community. Um, and the question is, right, how do we we take rational humans as they are and then we try to uh, create incentives where there's more situations where, uh, you know, where they have, where their rationality can be put in a pro-social direction. Is, is that basically, you know, is, is that a sort of a solution to this at, at the broadest level? Yeah, absolutely. And that is a big part of the resolution of the puzzle of how can a rational species embrace uh, you know, so, so, so much you know, codswallop and nonsense and, and conspiracy theorizing. Namely, rationality is always relative to some goal. Uh, <clears throat> that is, the, uh, and this, this goes back to, to David Hume, he, the way he put it is that uh, reason is always a slave to the passions, uh, by which he, he didn't mean we should you know, you know, go, go crazy and, and you know, burn our, our uh, spend like a drunken sailor. What he, I think what he meant was that um, we always deploy our rational fa- faculties to try to achieve something, uh, including objective truth, but not necessarily objective truth. Uh, we can, um, uh, and if someone is uh, saying things that earn them prestige within their own clique, their own community, uh, conversely, if they're avoiding things that would make them a non-person in their social circle, there's a sense in which that's not rational for them for that goal. That goal being, you know, being being accepted by by, by your. your, your your buddies, your, the, the people who uh, will determine your social fate. It's irrational for the society as a whole if everyone acts that way because the higher-order goal that we all ought to strive for is an objective understanding of reality. Uh, uh, and collective rationality often comes from implementing uh, rules, norms, institutions that, uh, that, that whose goal is objective understanding rather than lo- local social acceptance or uh, empowering stories. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things, you know, I was, I was struck by is that there seemed to be a, you know, this d- discrepancy between the way you describe the problem, which I think is perfect and, and spot on. Um, but then the solutions, you know, seem to be, you know, it, it seems like that they're, they don't, you know, they, they run into the, the, the basic problem of, you know, what you're trying to solve. Right. So, you know, you say create more social norms to be, for people to be rational, great. I mean, if you could do that, you know, that's excellent. <laughs> the question is, right, who, who has who has the incentive to do that? And it seems like you know the and, and you, you know you describe the the uh, terrible incentives of, for example, voting for you know uh, uh, bureaucrats in the public sector. That that it almost it almost seems insurmountable, and it almost seems like you know maybe we should be thinking about solutions that are a little more uh, you know radical or outside the box. And do, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, we, you know, the, the, yeah, I don't think it's, it's, you know, intractable and hopeless because we do have institutions that are, 
um, better than their alternatives, which don't mean that they're they're perfect. But you know, in general, science has been you know uh, not done a bad job bad job at um, uh, discovering the truth, although you know with obvious lapses and, and, and reversals and blind spots, which which themselves can get uh, overcome over time. So science is doing something right. Um, you know, liberal democracies are, are are pretty nice places to live compared to a lot of the alternatives, and so sure. uh, mechanisms of free speech and um, popular representation uh, are you know probably better than theocracies or or, or strongman societies. Mm-hmm. Um, for all their flaws, some things are better than other things, which doesn't mean that we can't identify their flaws and try, try to make them, them uh, better still and indeed a lot of we know that a lot of voting systems so you know better better than than in uh, hereditary monar- monarchies but there are irrationalities that are built into voting especially when you have you know, first past the post you know, kind of winner take all systems we know what the irrationalities are we also know that no system is perfect but that some are are better than others um, and you know democracy in general because you're kind of empowering people with no skills Kind of no direct skin in the game. Uh, it can lead to uh, irrationalism when people use voting as means of self-expression rather than evaluating and um, uh, opting for the best p- policies. Best meaning achieving things that they themselves agree are good, like you know, like safety, like affluence, like peace, like health. And there may be alternatives that we're slow in exploring, especially in, in the United States, which is such a kind of lumbering um, uh, you know, government and society where we're, we're maybe because we're so big, we tend not to be as innovative as some of the smaller countries. But maybe, you know, citizens councils where some people are drafted to work out a policy, but they're politically diverse, but they have to sit together in a room and, and recommend something, having studied the problem. Uh, that might be uh, conduce more to uh, better policies than just having everyone walking into a voting booth once every four years and, and uh, ticking a box. Yeah. What, what do you think about, say, I've seen people who are monarchists make the argument that there's more, uh, the incentives are more aligned for a monarch who wants to leave it, who wants to have a, uh, uh, you know, in a modern version of this, I think you could just look at some like the, you know, the system in Singapore, for example, you know, no, unquestionably democracies, uh, track record is better than dictatorship right as a whole um i think in the, in the 20th century a lot of that was confounded by the fact that so many dictatorships were communi- communist and i think that that relationship between democracy and economic growth has sort of broken down as dictators are no longer communists so they can you know they can that, that's like you know i think that might have been <laughs> one of the most important uh you know uh, well true although i know i think that's true but there are awful a lot of uh uh, you know, fascist uh, dictators and military juntas and strongman states that weren't, uh, you know, they, they tend, some, some of them did gravitate toward communism. You're right, that's, that's a confound. Yeah. Uh, and for economic growth, there's, there's another uh, complication there, uh, which is that, you know, uh, kind of the, the, the deck is often stacked against democracies in that kind of comparison, because if democracies are rich, and they, you know, they, 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 they tend to be on average, uh, it's harder to get 3% uh, economic growth if you're a rich country than if you're a dirt poor country. Because if you start off, you know, uh, some, some pretty basic infrastructure improvements like an electrical grid can really jack up your GDP if, you're, if you start off dirt poor. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you're already Switzerland to grow by another, another 3%, to expect exponential growth indefinitely is a pretty tall order. And that's going to make democracy seem less uh, efficient at economic growth than at least poor dictatorships.
Yeah, yeah. I think though, if you, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what what the literature says now, but I think uh, often when you compare uh, poor countries, dictatorships versus uh, democracies, well, if you look at, for example, the two biggest in the world, you know, China and India, China has been doing much better than India. I don't know if that holds across all dictatorships versus democracies, but you know, that's that's like a third of humanity right there. So it's an, it's an interesting it's an interesting data point. But you know, China starts off a lot poorer than than uh, you know Western Europe or the United States. Sure. So yeah, they've so uh, and you know if you start off poorer, then it's easier to get a certain amount of percentage-wise growth. I'm surprised at how little that's pointed out. Like the expectation of um, uh, constant uh, growth kind of assumes that we can our, our wealth can grow exponentially. You know, and maybe it can. And in fact, it, it has been. But it's pretty remarkable expectation when, when you think about it. That it, no matter how rich a country is, you it ought to get uh, increase its, its, its affluence by the same percentages it has all, all along. And, and it, it's kind of a miracle that it has. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. I think yeah. The, so the you know, there's two things where if you're comparing uh, poor countries and rich countries at the same point in history, so in t- 2021, the poor countries they can adopt you know the technologies that the rich countries have, so they have you know more potential return. I think people concerned about the slowdown in the United States are not saying well the U.S. is you know growing slower than China. You, you'd expect that because China's much uh, much poorer. I, I think the they make the comparison when the U.S. was on the technological frontier and leading the world in the 1950s and 1960s, they were growing at this rate and now in you know the 2000s and 2010s they're going at a much slower rate right mm-hmm. so that's the question why was the u.s at the forefront of the world in western europe uh, i think to a lesser extent and they were growing much faster in the 1950s and 1960s when today we're, we're growing slower right that's the question right right and it's a, partly a technological uh, question of whether our where there's a technological slowdown another is the, the economists talk about uh, secular stagnation whether they're you know demographic or or uh Fiscal or, or monetary um, uh, uh, inefficiencies or, or, or barriers to growth that are that we're, we're kind of stuck with for a while, uh, kind of uh, and a bit beyond my my expertise, my level of expertise, <laughs> yeah, or a lot beyond, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> sure, uh, yeah, very rational of you to, to recognize that, <laughs> right? <laughs> so yeah, so I've been, I mean, I was talking recently to uh, Phil Tetlock and Robin Hansen, and you know, one idea I've been talking to both of them about is uh, is uh, uh, making use more of betting markets uh, to get to get to more of an understanding of what's going to happen in the world, and also potentially as a selection mechanism to uh, select elites. I, there was a story of the Economist not that long ago that the uh, the UK was having um, uh, the, the British intelligence had set up a, uh, a forecasting website, and the hope is to take the top you know X uh, number of people and maybe rely on them in case of crisis. You know who knows if they if they actually do that. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that using? forecasting tournaments, new kinds of technologies to identify better elites and predict the future? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a great idea. Uh, I think more, I, I think I, I'd incline more toward uh, Phil Tetlock's super forecasting, super forecasters and forecasting tournaments than, than uh, prediction markets, which, which are you know, still amazingly good. But I think, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on this academic literature, but there have been attempts to uh, assess the accuracy of forecasting markets, and I think there are some built-in irrationalities there that the betters tend to overweight very small risks, for example, which of course meant, would mean that there are openings for someone to, you know, to to make a killing in the prediction markets by exploiting the, uh, the the irrationalities that are built into them. But still, they're certainly a, a lot better than punditry. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think that uh, that. Um, uh, f- 
basically super forecasters are better still is my understanding of uh, at least that so so our friend phil tetlock claims yeah so uh just changing gears a little bit um what your first book the first book i read by you was uh the uh, the blank slate was that your first book you ever published or no it was uh no i think it was the uh fifth or sixth i I did i I published two uh pretty technical books in uh language language acquisition in children that were uh published by university presses and not sold in stores <laughs> and, uh, and so i got tenure and uh but then i published the language instinct how the mind works um words and rules and then, then came the blank slate and the blank slate there actually is a a, a kind of uh, a logical progression because i wrote the blank slate partly over the controversies that i had uh raised I wouldn't say uh, obliviously. I, I knew that they they were that they were there, but some of the reactions to uh, how the mind works in the language instinct, namely, why is the idea of human nature so uh, incendiary? Yeah. So, uh, so I, I just wanted to ask you, but how how do you? So that was the first book I discovered. I've also yeah gone back and read some of the other ones. Language Instinct, by the way, for anyone listening, is just uh, I just found it beautiful. I mean, you're, you're I think you're a great writer, and you're proof that you know rationality does not foreclose the ability. <laughs> oh, that's kind of things. Yeah, to be very literary, you know, and, and, and be a great, you know, sort of artistic the way you put these books together. Um, and so yeah, the, the, I brought up the blank slate because I was wondering. Uh, uh, how do you, how do you feel about the way sort of the public discussion over these things are have moved? Because I yeah I read I read that book. I also read uh, Judith Rich Harris, uh, who I know you're you're a big fan of. And it seems like the, you know the science has advanced. Uh, the genome wide association studies have, have come along and sort of you know uh, I think you know told a consistent story. And despite the attention that you got and uh, uh, Harris got. It seems like the public conversation has, you know, moved in the opposite direction. If it, you know, if it's moved at all, uh, how do you feel about sort of how we how we think about these things and how it's changed in the last uh, 15, 20 years? Yeah, it has. Uh, uh, just in the last uh, <clears throat> five years or so, or less, the, the Great Awakening has um, involved a huge lurch. Um, back toward the blank slate after something of a window uh, that uh, that it, I think it opened in the the, the the late 90s and first decade of the 21st century, where it was not as taboo to discuss uh, genetic and evolutionary influences on um, our, our our emotions and thoughts and, and uh, behavior. <clears throat> but it has uh, that that window is uh, there, there are people trying to slam it shut for sure, and it it is extended. You know the the big. In the blank slate, I try to identify why what ought to be an empirical question in 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 psychology, namely um, what aspects what what dimensions of human psychology are um, uh, are influenced by our evolutionary history acting via the genes and which ones are are the result of ontogenetic learning and and, and culturation. But no one treats it as just an empirical issue. You know they they get you cancelled, and uh, th- th- that is the 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 politically incorrect opinion on, on these, and it tends to be in the direction of the blank slate, at least among the left, uh, with some exceptions like the causes of homosexuality and and now of of, uh, of being transgender, where the politically correct position there is uh, all all nature no nurture, <laughs> but but in general it's all nurture no nature, and the blank slate tried to explore why what. What are the hot buttons? Why does why does this empirical issue uh, get people so so roused up? I identified 
uh, a, a small number for fears that human nature raises uh, in people, mostly, you know, largely in the left, but not entirely. The right has its own um, uh, tab taboos as well. Uh, and they have been uh, you know, revived in the last uh, few years, expanded to the point where when it comes to racial differences, which is one of the, the big um, uh, third rails, uh, that is one of the reasons that people want to believe that we're blank slates is that it makes any differences between the races impossible. If we're all blank, then you know zero equals zero equals zero, and it would just be scientifically impossible for races to differ. Uh, and so you wouldn't even have to have the debate; it would be impossible. Everything is due to to learning and enculturation. Now the converse doesn't hold. It could be that there is a rich universal human nature, and and no differences between races. We're all we're all humans. We all. Uh, have the same human nature, but the uh, just to build a, a kind of a, a safe zone uh, around uh, the equality of all races, it's often been expedient to deny that human nature exists at all. Now that has expanded so that even culture now, which used to be the alternative to nature in explaining ethnic differences, Mm -hmm. has now been uh, uh, demonized. And if you even say that there are different, uh, there are cultural explanations for the different fates of ethnic groups, right. you, uh, you, you could be canceled. It has to be uh, all racism all the time. That's the only permissible uh, explanation for ethnic differences. Yeah. So, I mean, do you have, that's, yeah, I agree. That's the sort of the, uh, the lay of the land. So it seems like, yeah, there was once a genetics versus cultural debate. And now yeah, the forget culture, about it. not anymore. Yeah, right. Right. The culture is sort of the far right of the debate and the genetics has, yeah, fallen off. Yeah, I know. It's, it's blaming the victim. It's the, the, the culture of poverty. It's the model minority. There are all kinds of, uh, of, uh, stigmatizing labels within academia and journalism for that family of ideas, which, yeah, used to be the politically correct, uh, alternative to genetic explanations. Now it too is politically incorrect. Yeah. So, I mean, all else equal, you'd think that the side with science would at least see things move with science on its side would at least see things move in its direction. Well, that hasn't happened. Do you have a good theory as to what's changed? Because those concerns were always there, right? They, yeah, they were always there. And it's, it is, it's not clear what caused the, the sudden, the, you know, just the, the, this awakening of the last uh, uh, two to three years. You know, partly they're, they're, and I think we're only. I think it's a, it's an interesting phenomenon to try to understand, and I don't think we we do understand it. Um, you know, I, I did identify the four four fears of human nature um, with a with a blank slate, and and a lot of the features of what we now call cancel culture were there starting in the seventies. Uh, you know, uh, people promoting, advancing, especially when it, certain. Uh, taboo hypotheses, such as innate racial differences, were physically assaulted. They were fired. They were, uh, or, or in the case of my my uh, Harvard colleague E. O. Wilson, um, who did not advance uh, hypotheses about racial differences, but just in universal human nature. But he famously had a pitcher of ice water dumped on his head at the meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Uh, a bunch of academics, left wing academics, signed a manifesto denouncing him. Um, so the seeds were there. As I, I say, Billy Joel was wrong. We did start the fire, <laughs> we, we baby boomers. But it has, it has really kind of burned out of control in the last three years. So uh, why, did, why the, the sudden increase? Uh, you know, partly it's that it, it may be that there is um, <clears throat> that there, 
some self-reinforcing dynamics, such as if uh, this was suggested by Scott Alexander, let's say your way of calibrating how egalitarian you should be is that you should be uh, more anti-racist than the mean in your social group. So however... Uh, ha- however much people are opposed to racism, and, that, and you know, and they are. It's one of the the, the great triumphs that, that uh, you, you don't really don't have it, uh, overt racism in the way you, you would have fifty or sixty years ago. Uh, what do you do about it if you're trying to be less racist than everyone else, and, and they're not very racist in, in the first place? Well, you start denouncing, you know, Halloween costumes. Uh, it's uh, that there could be a kind of arms race in uh, and anti-racism. That's part of the explanation. Another part is that. Um, the, uh, uh, the the establishment of a, uh, a cadre of bureaucrats in institutions like universities and uh-huh. increasingly corporations uh, means that the system itself uh, uh, rewards that. There's a, a, a way of getting prestige or and suffering no cost is you you you, you express a grievance to the your the the um, diversity. Uh, inclusion and equity officer in your organization, and um, and organizations that are kind of built now to favor that kind of, uh, of grievance. And there are probably dynamics that are just play play themselves out with different subject matter in different eras. And this is I'm, I'm by by no means the first to point this out. But uh, comparisons to the Chinese Cultural Revolution, to the Salem uh, witch trials, to the European witch hunts, to, to, to Stalinism, to McCarthyism, where you can get uh, a regime of competitive denunciation, uh, denounce lest you be denounced first, can kind of entrench itself. You can get spirals of silence where um, if, you, if you punish people who um, doubt something and you punish the people who say that people should be allowed to, to, to announce something, that can kind of be, become entrenched and reinforce itself, and we may have stepped into that vortex. Yeah, I was going, yeah, I was going to ask about the growth of administrators. You know, I'm sure you've seen the chart where the number of professors sort of stays, you know, the same, and then the administrators just, yeah, go th- goes through the roof. I, I think another problem is I think the professors changed, and maybe this took a while to manifest itself, but a lot of uh, a lot of disciplines were created for political reasons. You know, a lot of the uh, studies departments were created because you know students occupied some some office, and that's not the normal way that you know academic fields develop. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so those people became part of the you know the faculty, and they brought certain you know political commitments and and ideas. Um, yeah, I think uh, Zach Goldberg has uh, uh, has argued that it was uh, the rise of social media. So if you look at the you know, the time of the Great Awakening, it takes it takes off around 2010. That's about the time Twitter becomes popular. And you could sort of see how Twitter, um, you could see how Twitter could facilitate this, right? You have uh, people just talking all the time, looking for the most outrageous thing possible, you know, sharing, sharing the, you know, the craziest things, confirming their biases. Uh, so yeah, there, there's a, there's a lot going on here. I, I think that, I, yeah, I think that in the U.S. in particular, I think the, the, you know, it seems like the, uh, the inability to close racial racial gaps i think is just such a persistent frustration of our culture and it's just something since the 1960s it goes in cycles we pay a little more attention to it or we pay a little less attention to it so in you know the 60s we pay a lot of attention to it in the 90s and the early uh, 2000s maybe we don't pay too much attention to it in the, the 2020s now we just you know we're obsessed with it and it seems like that this is just a problem that uh it doesn't get solved and then it's always sort of 
there to act to activate you know all these other emotional currents that it, that like you know people they think about these other things sort of abstractly but i think that the racial disparities between whites and african americans in the u.s ha- has a huge psychic pull in our culture um any any thoughts on that yeah i i i, I tend to agree and i and sometimes i think that um if uh, instead of focusing on the statistical disparities, we had a more uh, kind of colorblind policy and colorblind science while auditing for racism itself with the fake resume studies and so on, so that if there, if when we do have evidence of racism, we have, you know, ought, to, ought to go after it. But to uh, uh, perhaps have some kind of you know, benign neglect to ethnic and racial differences that uh, that, that might be healthier. Because there are all kinds of, you know, when you think about it, there are all kinds of, of ethnic differences that we could look at that we don't look at, and it's probably good that we don't look at it. Uh, you know, if you were to divide uh, you know, every social and economic variable by, you know, Jewish, non-Jewish, uh, you know, that could get kind of ugly, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that we don't, or Muslim and non-Muslim. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, there are all kinds of ethnic differences that we don't obsess over, that, that you know, we just don't go there. Yeah. And, uh, they're, and often they're scientifically trivial anyway. Um, but we've locked ourselves into an obsession over, over racial differences that, uh, you know, that, 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 that may be the cause of some of our divisions, Yeah. Yeah, like you said, benign neglect. It sounded like you were you were at the start of that uh, saying uh, the sort of the opposite. You have this department of rooting out racism, right? And then maybe that silos it because you could just have you know the department of rooting out racism. It doesn't have to affect the rest <laughs> of science or, or society, right? I mean, that's well, you know, Ibram Kendi did propose a federal department of anti-racism <laughs> right. at the cabinet level. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think that'd be. I, I think the silo. I think we burst out of the silo. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's no there's no convergence between you and you and Kendi. Uh, prob- probably not. Yeah. <laughs> so you've re- I mean, relatedly, you had a um, you had a uh, uh, sort of a, um, a controversy where people tried to cancel you on some stupid things, some some tweets that were just you know so stupid it's not even worth uh, responding to or justifying uh, uh, justifying it with a response. I I wrote an article on uh, Killette about it. Um, can you talk about you know anything that surprised you or anything you learned during that process? Because was this the first sort of mobbing you've been through as an academic, or is this just one of many? It's not one of many. Uh, it wasn't the first. There was there was a, an episode where. Um, uh, at an event at Harvard on uh, did, did uh, something along with did political correctness help elect Trump? Uh, and there, there there is reason to believe that it did. Uh, that is a reaction to, to political correctness. And I uh, pointed out that uh, based on my own experience, that not every the alt right does not just consist of uh, uh, you know, dicky torch wielding skinheads, but yeah. that there are actually some you know, smart, educated people who have gravitated to the alt right precisely because. Uh, academia has become so suffocating that they figure they must be suppressing some kind of truth. They just want a, an arena in which they can uh, explore ideas and think their thoughts and explore uh, and then and, and see what's true and what's false. And, and the more that academia uh, punishes certain realms of belief, the more cu- intellectually curious people are going to go elsewhere, including some unsavory <coughs> uh, cliques. Uh, that was uh, that that event. The the video was taken out of context, so it, makes it made it sound as if I was thinking that, that all, people in the alt-right are, are intelligent and educated. Uh-huh. Uh, and it led to 
Fortunately, I don't know if it would still happen, but it led to an op-ed in the New York Times the next day called uh, How Social Media is Making Us Stupider by uh, Jesse Singo. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, so that, that was an early early attempt. Fortunately, you know, he came to my defense then. And uh, in the case of the petition by a bunch of um, linguistics grad students to the Linguistic Society of America, uh, I had 14 different people coming to my defense publicly. Uh, so I, I, I was lucky. And again, so I can't, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I can't, uh, complain because I'm. Uh, you know, I don't think I'm that easily cancelled. And and what they, what they proposed doing in any, in any case was to take my name off a list of media experts in linguistics and revoke <laughs> right. my distinguished fellow status from the Linguistic Society of America, which no one cares about anyway. Yeah. And, and even that didn't happen. Uh, no, the, the the real fear is uh, the message that it sends to. Um, to, to people who are less powerful than, than me. I mean, I've got tenure, which is an amazingly pr- talk about privilege. Forget uh-huh. being forget being white, having tenure is the ultimate privilege. Yeah. Um, probably, you know, I, I was actually I was actually skeptical of whether uh, tenure really was defensible. Um, I'm starting to see its merits. Uh, namely, there's just no way in the world I would I would uh, write what I wrote if I didn't have tenure because I know that I would uh, always be in jeopardy of losing my job. Um, but uh, the the fear is the, uh, the the message that it sends to the non-tenured, to the journalists, to the postdocs, to the grad students, to the assistant professors, namely, say something that someone somewhere can interpret as a dog whistle for something bad, and your career might be over. So that's so one of the reasons that this uh, that that petition upset me was the. Uh, the the, the uh, message of intimidation that it sent everyone else, and right. the other was just the, the sheer you know I- I- idiocy, the sheer the the fact that people who presumably are are, are smart are. I mean, I guess this is the left wing version of QAnon and chemtrails. Mm-hmm. Namely, if there is a moral crusade, then there's just no bottom to the the stupidity. Uh, you can deploy all of your rational faculties to completely, uh, you know, I- idiotic conclusions if it promotes solidarity within within a uh, a sect. Yeah. Well, one thing I've been thinking about. I mean, it, just to go a little off off topic here. Uh, the um, the difference between sort of what is now right wing sort of irrationality and left wing. We've touched on a little bit in this conversation, but it seems like there's a difference between QAnon or chemtrails. I don't know if chemtrails is that associated with the right. I think probably. I think not. No, that's right. You're right. Uh, yeah, well, well, I mean, QAnon, the anti-vax, I guess we get as as is identifiably, you know, a right-wing thing now. Just looking at, you know, uh, polling and vaccination rates, and you know, this this seems to be just like a like a sort of a platonic form of stupidity, right? It's just sort of uh, people believing things that are just not true, right? And then, mm-hmm. but what they, but the letter about you trying to cancel you um, was not exactly that. They didn't say that Stephen, you know, Stephen Pinker kidnaps children or, or something like that, right? It was. Pre- True, it was predict- right. it, yeah, it was uh, predictable, right? It was predictable from an ideology, right? Um, and so it, 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 there seems to be the, a kind of craziness that is just taking some premises that are, you know, that are wrong, like the blank slate of human nature, following those to their, you know, rational conclusion. So like, you know, it's rationality built on a terrible foundation. And we can maybe identify with this with the left today. And then on the right, you have, you know, platonic irrationality. Yeah, I mean, the, the closest maybe on, on the right would be, um, you know, the attempts to cancel uh, the, the the never Trump Republicans, the Liz, uh, Liz Cheney's and uh, Mitt Romney's. 
uh, to try to make it just outrageous that they should even that they, there should yeah. even be this within that tent this disagreement over whether Donald Trump you know, can can be the ringleader of American uh, the, the torchbearer of American conservatism and there it's not even doesn't seem to be a debate that they're having but if you uh, if you doubt Trump then you're uh, you know then, then you're radioactive uh, so that's the close maybe the closest equivalent but but I agree that there is a difference between holding um, crazy beliefs and systematically trying to disable the mechanisms of debate and deliberation. And that is a, an important difference because it is just those mechanisms that implement rationality at the level above the individual. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. I mean, even the, the, the cancellations for not supporting Trump, like even those seem to be pretty issue free, you know, that, that, that makes it again, distinguishable from, from the left. It's just loyalty to one man, which seems like more like kind of like human nature, what humans have generally, you know, been like just, you know, tribal, uh, you know, worship the leader, uh, don't, don't talk about, don't like insult our symbols. While leftism seems to be, I don't want to say a more advanced form of, you know, irrationality <laughs> or hysteria, but it's sort of like that. It's sort of, you need like this intellectual gloss to get this. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a fascinating topic to compare and contrast, you know, the right and the left and their different ways they're irrational, which I, which I don't think anyone does because everyone is on one side or the other. So I think nobody sees clearly what's going on on both there, sides. There, there, are a, there are a few, uh, there is a, um, you know, and I, and I talk about in, in social and political psychology, there is a, a, a you know, a tiny, um, a group of researchers who who actually try to um, compare degree the these um, motiv- kinds of motivated reasoning and my side bias uh, whether they're stronger on the left or the right uh, that that is for example if you give people logic problems where the uh, uh, just do the conclusions follow from the premises, it's well known that if the conclusions favor the right or favor the left, then people on the left or the right either accept them or don't, even though the question is not, are they true, just do they follow logically from the premises. Uh, mm-hmm. Similarly, do uh, do these data support, uh, show the efficacy of gun control or, or, or not, and whether people looking at those numbers interpret the study as favoring uh, one policy or another depends on which policy they believe in before they even look at the numbers. And the more numerate you are, the worse off, the the, the more liable to fallacies you are. So the question, now the meta question is, is that kind of fallacy uh, stronger on the left or or, or the right? And uh, the the, the studies that I cite seem to suggest that that it's pretty bipartisan. That is, there's a... uh, you know, I, I talk about there's the bias bias, namely you always assume that the uh, other side is biased and you're not. And then, then there's what I call the bias bias bias, yeah. namely the, uh, the, the the claim that the uh, from, from people on the left that the, that the right are more vulnerable to the bias bias than the left is, and that 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 seems to be a bias bias bias. Yeah. Uh, that is both both sides are, are biased about how much they think the other side is biased. Yeah. <laughs> right exactly yeah so yeah you always see yeah you always see these studies you know uh the right believes in more disinformation or something like that and you'll look at the you'll look at the study and it asks questions like you know is uh 
It was the election stolen in 2020, right? Okay, you, you drew that. You do. You didn't pick that question at random. <laughs> you do what you were doing there. Yeah, no, that, that, that's right. And often, uh, say, studies that find the conservatives are more bigoted. Uh, well, yeah. you know, well, it depends on on the target group. If you if you substitute in, say, uh, Christian fundamentalists to Muslims, then you find that it's uh, the people on the left are uh, show the same degree of bias as assessed, at least by those studies, as people on the right. But if the study that you ran only had designated uh, sympathy groups for the left as the, the, the targets, then it's going right. to look as if people on the right are more biased. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, with all this political bias in academia and, you know, what's going on, I mean, and you talked about the uh, the letter as a means to sort of uh, discourage young people from speaking out. Uh, well, you know, well, so what, what advice would you have to somebody who's thinking about academia, uh, who wants to go into, say, psychology or political science or economics, um, but is afraid of the political climate and if they're able to do, you know, research the way they want? Yeah, it's an agonizing question. Uh, part of it is choose a program that is uh, committed to viewpoint diversity, where at least you'll have the, the kind of a posse among your professors and fellow grad students. Um, another is uh, wait till you have tenure before you express your most outrageous opinions. Actually, it's, it doesn't even have to be outrageous opinions. And, and, and in fact, I think the, what, the first piece of correspondence that you and I had uh, was one where you made a, what I think is a, a, a brilliant and an invaluable point, which is that the problem in academia is not that people are being canceled for expressing you know, outrageous views, but that they're uh-huh. canceled for expressing views that might very well be correct. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem. Uh, so even when it comes to radioactive beliefs that might be correct, Take advantage of this you know, perhaps archaic, perhaps justifiable uh, peculiarity called tenure, and to do uh, uh, do, do the kind of yeoman work within your field of ad, you know, ad, adding to knowledge in, in domains that are not absolutely incendiary and inflammatory until you're you're in a position of strength. So that's another bit of kind of cynical, practical advice. Uh, but the other is, and this would be more, I think, advice to the people in power than the people who are starting out, is you know, we've got to change the system. This is uh, a, you know, we, scientists are, can or at least ought to be constantly on the lookout for, for bias. We have double-blind um, designs with placebo controls so that we don't have the distortions of, of ex, uh, experimenter expectancy, namely cooking the data to favor the hypothesis you want. Well, political bias is uh, another f- contaminant of the, uh, the, the scientific enterprise, and that should be singled out, and we should have safeguards against that. Um, this is a, a point that you, you mentioned Phil Tetlock earlier in the conversation that he has made together with Jonathan Haidt and, um, uh, and, uh, and, and some others. Um, Duarte and uh, uh, Lee Jessam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's a difficult piece of advice. You know, wait till you wait till you have tenure. The you know, twenty years maybe. You know, you're starting a grad program. You can you can say the things you want. I think you have to have a, a low time preference. You know, for that for the you know for people to take that advice. And I think you know, are, are you surprised that? You know, so maybe yeah. You know, I mean, if you have a passion, I mean, if you have a passion for a subject, I mean, go for it. And you know, your ideas aren't you know that radical, and you feel like you can advance knowledge without you know without stepping on toes. I mean, go ahead. But yeah, I mean, the, if you really want to say something that is controversial or would get you in trouble, telling people to wait 15, 20 years is just a very, very hard pill to swallow. Um, uh, it is, and it is, and it is a pathology of. Uh, academia that 
that that that uh, that I'd, I'd have to offer that advice. Uh, I think about tenure. Of course, it's great when you have it, but ideally, there should be uh, uh, free, freedom of of inquiry for everyone at every career level. Uh, and uh, and of course, the granting of tenure itself can be distorted by conformity to to your politically correct uh, 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 ideology. Yeah. Uh, do you think the rise of the like uh, you know the administrators and the uh, restrictions on speech and things like diversity uh, statements that you have to submit to universities? It's, it seems like the the system is getting better, you know, quote unquote better at filtering out anyone who might say anything wrong once they get tenure. Right? It does seem like there's a more of an ideological selection to make sure that when you get to that endpoint, I mean, you would have had to you would have had to you know really you would have had to have been a great actor to have you know <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. No. I think I, I think it truly is pernicious in that. That those diversity statements really are an, an, an outrage for for job job candidates. Uh, so I think you know part of the I think it's also good that, that we are starting to have organizations that are pushing back because a lot of this is just bullying from uh, some 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 people in power, probably perhaps not reflecting the, the majority opinion, although a growing minority, but probably not a majority. But organizations like Heterodox Academy. Um, Academic Freedom Alliance, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, um, uh, Counterweight, uh, the, the, the people who believe in, in, in uh, free, freedom of uh, inquiry and freedom of thought really do have to organize and push back because the institutional forces are, have been gaining in strength and they become increasingly entrenched in uh, uh, universities. But part of the reason that they're entrenched is that the going, going back to the um, principal agent problem or public choice theory, the incentives for deans and provosts and presidents so far have been stacked in one direction. Namely, no one suffers any consequences from implementing these repressive policies, whereas they know that if they stand up for intellectual freedom, then they'll, they'll, they, they might be carried out of their office by, by young protesters. Uh, there might be noisy demonstrations outside their office and you know, banging pots and stuff. Uh, but if there are organizations that would make uh, the, the life of a college president miserable if he tried to uh, suppress uh, uh, academic freedom, that is, some nuisances from the other side, then uh, Probably a lot. I suspect a lot of them, if you were to interview them confidentially, would actually not believe the things that they say in their their, their public statements. Uh, but they they know what side of the, the, the their, their bread is buttered on. They know how, how to avoid damaging uh, publicity. Um, so there should be damaging publicity from <laughs> from the other direction too. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing, um, you know, you talk about pushing back within the institutions. Well, you know, one thing uh, Eric Kaufman has uh, written about and for a report for CSPI, and he actually did a um, uh, surveys of uh, professors, right? And, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, and I think he bursts the myth that there's this uh, silent majority that's that's pro-free speech, right? And there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, ambivalence, right? Depending on, you know, how you ask the question. But the, pro sure. the unquestionably pro-censorship side does out number the uh the pro-free speech side and um it gets worse the younger you look if you look at you know phd students versus uh versus no right no they're they're definitely cohort of x my memory and actually i did i did uh, cite that in my uh, recent interview in the new york times magazine uh where i think it i think they actually mentioned it in a footnote they they, uh uh, actually i don't know if they named the cspi study itself but uh that's that's what they alluded to that that the intolerance does tend to 
uh, increase with younger cohorts. But I, I, I might be mis- misremembering the, the, the data from that very, very interesting study. But I, I, I thought it was still a majority who were, uh, but a shrinking majority uh, who were at least in principle favor of, in favor of uh, uh, freedom of expression. Yeah, I th- it really, I, you know, yeah, I, I think it depends a lot on how you ask the question. No so I, I think yeah. if you're thinking of just a straight up, you know, free speech versus, uh, you know, representation in the curriculum, you know, I, I, that question, you, you people, well, you know, want control over their syllabus. So, so in that case, they'll be okay. Right. But, if, but if you, you know, if you just, if you ask specifics, actually, like, should someone be able to study, talk about race and intelligence or this or that, it's actually, it actually looks much worse in those cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, you know, there's no, you know, the, it's uh, the, the overall lesson is. I mean, there's no unambiguously, you know, uh, uh, pro-free speech uh, majority or even plurality uh, in academia. But but what, what that leads uh, Eric to say is that um, he thinks that the reform needs to come from uh, from outside the university, right? You need regulations for government. He's actually, uh, I think, the uh, the uh, the UK, they took some of uh, suggestions him and other people have made, and they've, you know, they've appointed people from outside the university to look into uh, free speech issues. Um, have you given to any thought about possibilities like that? Yeah, so it should be, you, know, you don't want, you don't want the government to be kind of putting restrictions on content. Uh, that is, you may not teach critical race theory, uh, as some state legislatures have tried to do. And, and to the credit of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, they have uh, opposed that kind of heavy-handed interference on content as, uh, coming from the right as strongly as they have the uh, abuses coming from, from the left. But, uh, but I think it's completely legitimate and to have some kind of transparency to the process by which uh, the, these policies are set, uh, and that if there are flagrant violations of uh, the um, kind of fiduciary duties of a university, such as to allow different opinions to be expressed if they're, if they're backed up by argument and evidence, then a university is just inviting external scrutiny, external con- control if they continue to flout them. Uh, so it shouldn't be content, but it should be the, the rules. That is, the, the, uh, you know, we may need external you know, referees and umpires, um, they're not players on one side or another. Yeah. So just to just to wrap up, um, your book on rationality just came out. You always tackle the big issues: mind, language, war, the course of human history, rationality. Uh, do you have any uh, idea what's coming next yet? Yeah, I do have a, a line of research that uh, was was going to culminate in a book uh, this year, but I, I put it on the back burner in order to write rationality. But I do have a, a proposal for a book that would be would be called "Don't Go There: Common Knowledge and the Science of uh, Hypocrisy, Civility, Outrage, and Taboo." Uh-huh. Uh, it'll have to be a very different book because I proposed I first conceived it before the the, the, the the Great Awakening. I mean, those issues were there. there they go back to the 70s, if not earlier. Uh, but the explosion of, um, uh, of, of the outrage industry, particularly in academia, but also in journalism, means that I'll have to uh, uh, probably spend more, more attention on, uh, uh, on the recent manifestations. But the key idea is that, uh, you know, what does it make something outrageous as opposed to something you disagree with? You know, what, what, what marks that line? 
Uh, and I, I suggest it's a phenomenon of what the, the game theorists and philosophers call common knowledge, namely the difference between everyone knowing something and everyone knowing that everyone knows it. That that is a, we know that that's a major logical difference, that there's some things that you can deduce with uh, knowing that everyone knows something as opposed to just everyone knowing it. Uh, but it makes a huge psychological difference. It's the difference between something being kind of out there, out of the bag, uh, uh, you know, the, the little boy seeing that the emperor is naked, that phenomenon versus a kind of elephant in the room where everyone pretends that it doesn't exist even though they know that it does. And that that psychological difference and logical difference drives a lot of our social and political discourse in terms of uh, both genteel and sometimes beneficial hypocrisy, politeness, tact, uh, innuendo, euphemism on the one hand, and uh, things that are out there often triggering uh, outrage uh, on the other. Yeah. Well, I said that was the last question, but that just reminded me of something I've, I've wondered about. Uh, so John McCorder has written about um, how uh, like the old swear words, the F word and stuff like that are, are not really uh, uh, profanity anymore, that the most sacred, you know, words, the things that are constantly, you know, the, the things that are most taboo are racial slurs, you know, homophobic slurs, things like that. Um what is that? I mean, does that say something very deep about our culture? Or is it possible to read too much into that? Does it have, I mean, historical precedence, or, or is this something strange? Because the, the way you talk about, I, I remember the way you talk about swearing in uh, uh, previous books. It's like when people, uh, you know, you say things like when people, um, uh, you know, are in pain or they want to express strong emotion, they go to the divine, they go to a fornication, they go to bodily <laughs> functions, right? And the fact that that's not profanity anymore but you know racial slurs and homophobic slurs are i mean at the deepest level sort of what, what does that say about what's happened to society yeah there there is a in, in terms of which words become taboo and which ones uh, aren't there is a um you see very broad, long-term uh, tidal kind of tectonic forces that make some things less outrageous than others. And the most obvious one is, is religion. That is, um, the, uh, the, there are virtually no re religious taboo words anymore, hell, damn, you know, Jesus Christ. There used to be. We know that because of the, uh, the movie Gone with the Wind created a, a sensation when the, the last line was frankly my dear i don't give it i don't give a damn <laughs> and that uh you know that that was really edgy back in 1939 <laughs> now you have it has to be explained to someone what that fuss was about or uh -huh. earlier when um pygmalion was first performed on the stage the, the predecessor to my fair lady and uh the eliza doolittle character caused a uh, a ruckus when she said not bloody likely at an upper class tea party uh and it, not only did the character within the plot of the play uh shock her uh her her her, uh, her, her fellows but the uh -huh. audiences of the play itself were shocked that these that the the word bloody should be said on the british stage uh -huh. uh, again you have to explain it and in fact it was Sensibilities had changed so much that by the time Pygmalion was converted to the, was, was uh, uh, adapted to the musical My Fair Lady, they uh -huh. had to change the uh, shock line because no one would have gotten the outrage to the word bloody. And that's when it was uh, at the Ascot Races movie, A Bloom and Arse, uh, <laughs> that, that had to be the. Uh, so uh, now, it, so it shows that the. The, the shock words can change over time. And in general, the fact that, cult, that our culture has become more secular is partly an explanation for why religious taboo words have, have, um, uh, have, have lost their, their sting and why 
racial and homophobic words have acquired one. Uh, on top of that, though, it isn't just this, the content, because the thing is that for every uh, taboo word, there is a genteel synonym. So it's not that you just can't talk about it. Uh, it's the words themselves take on taboo status in a kind of self-reinforcing dynamic where the fact that other pe people treat them as taboo means that they are taboo. Uh, and, that, and so some words can drift in and out of uh, tab taboo uh, uh, status, and it's the particular word, not just the, the, uh, the, the, the content. But yeah, we've seen it with, uh, with, with, uh, with racial words, including ones that, you know, that even 10 or 20 years ago, uh, both well, John can get away with it probably more than I can, but uh, <laughs> I, would, I, I uttered, uh, mention, as linguists would say, I didn't use the words, but I mentioned them in my capacity as a linguist. You know, I study words. Uh, how, how do you study something if you can't even uh, talk about what you're studying? Uh, and uh, probably you know some some any of me of mine could you know, dig through YouTube and see see me utter the n word in a right. to, with a long list of other profanities <laughs> give them, that give I was the blueprint if they, <laughs> they, yeah, they want right. to make a, make a better attempt shows you how incompetent those linguistic grad students were that they didn't even find that yeah right right <laughs> now you know, maybe we shouldn't be be giving them these these clues uh, and maybe you know and the thing is that that linguists of all peoples should be note the difference between use and mention. Namely, actually weaving a word into your, your speech with all of its connotations versus discussing it at a meta level as uh, you know, qua word, uh, as a word that other people say in certain circumstances. And you know, bizarrely, that distinction, one way in which our, uh, our intellectual culture has become stupider is that that distinction is adamantly denied. Uh, and that, that what was it, named Don McNeil, the uh, New York Times editor who lost mm -hmm. his job because he discussed the N-word and, and actually mentioned it in a discussion with some high school students. And so years later, he got sacked. Yeah. I mean, this, is, this is like primitive word magic, that you right. can't even utter the word. That it, it, it will arouse you know, dreadful, uh, awe-inspiring forces, uh, the, the opposite of the lesson number one in linguistics, which is that words are just conventions and their meaning comes from the way people interpret them in context. Mm. Yeah, that Don McNeil one is, is nothing. Did you hear about the guy teaching Chinese at, uh, at the U.S.? Oh, oh yes. The, the, the guy who used the pause word, <laughs> ne ga, in Chinese. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, that, that, that's the problem. And again, going back to that LSA petition, like nothing is too stupid to, yeah. to cause uh, outrage. Yeah, exactly. So it, on that uh, on that uh, book on common knowledge, is there an estimated time on, of arrival, or is it still in the embryonic stage? Oh, that's that's just uh, you know uh, at the time that you and I are having this conversation, rationality hasn't even hit the stores. Yeah. So I've got uh, uh, some some a lot of talking about that book, and uh, so probably not for four or five years. <laughs> okay, no rush. I'm just I just yes. look forward to reading every everything you write, Steve. It's it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure's been mine. Thanks so much, Richard, for having me on. Mm -hmm.